Peter King, um, trained at the Sydney Hospitals, the Royal Hospital for Women and Royal Manchester Children's Hospital before completing a Bachelor of Applied Science Nursing at Sydney University and a Postgraduate Certificate in Mental Health Nursing at uh, UWS. For the past 20 years he's worked predominantly in alcohol and other drug sector and mental health in both inpatient and community services. His position prior to joining the Refugee Health Service in 2009 was CNC team leader of the MacArthur Early Psychosis Program. His role in Refugee Health Service is to manage the Auburn GP clinic and conduct a nurse-led clinic for asylum seekers at Parramatta as well as a um, substantial education and advocacy role. So please welcome Peter King. My presentation will be sort of relatively mundane. Um, Brett Holmes alluded to um, misperceptions in the community and particularly in the media in relation to refugees and asylum seekers. So I'd, I'd just like to perhaps clarify, if I can get through my presentation and you have a better sense of um, uh, how asylum seekers and refugees are assisted, um, and some of the systems that they come through and some of their entitlements, I'll be, I'll be really pleased. So I'll tell you a bit about our service first. We're a statewide health service funded by the Ministry of Health. We aim to pr protect and promote um, the health of refugees and really importantly people of refugee-like backgrounds because you'll be aware that there, um, there are quite a number of asylum seekers um, within the nation. Uh, at the moment there are about 25 or 24 or 25,000 uh, asylum seekers nationwide and they're people who are waiting for decisions about um, refugee status to be determined. So there are quite a number of people out there, um, particularly in New South Wales and Victoria, and they have varying entitlements. Uh, and this is particularly important for those of us who, uh, who, are, who assist them through the health service. Um, we're a relatively small team, but we have, um, we have uh, quite a number of roles. So we provide some clinical services. We, um, we have some projects to assist uh, refugees and asylum seekers. We train people. We have a large advocacy role, and that's particularly important, um, particularly important at the moment when, um, when refugees and asylum seekers are you know, at least disparaged by large, proportion, large portions of the community and, and in the popular press. And we, um, we conduct and are involved in research. So our clinical ser services involve GP-led clinics and we have nurse-led clinics that, um, that screen newly arrived uh, refugees under the humanitarian program. We have a, 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 di a dietitian that works with our service. We've got a, a nutrition project within the Fairfield area. Um, and we have a women's health uh, Officer, I want to give you this definition of the uh, of a refugee because it's it's um, it's confusing and it's there, there's a misperception that um, it's it's easy to st uh, to obtain refugee status, but it's it's a fair, fairly narrow legalistic definition, and it's hard for people to provide the evidence to uh, to ensure that they fulfil the definition and, and given their rights under the definition. 
So it's a person who's outside their country, uh, um, uh, their nationality, who are, who are unwilling or unable to return for fear of persecution for a number of reasons. Um, not least um, membership of a, a particular social group or politi political opinion. Um, uh, it could be on account of race, religion or, or gender for that matter, or sexual preference. These people have got to prove that, that this has happened to them. So again, it's quite difficult. We hear this, um, uh, we hear from politicians in particular um, that these people should have, you know, the appropriate documents so that they can prove who they are. Um, and I, I think this is particularly cruel because you don't go and ask the persecutors uh, in the country that you are coming from for your travel documents to, uh, to get you out of the country. It's not possible and most of the places that these people are coming from are conflict zones and often the infrastructure that might have provided that, uh, that sort of documentation and evidence for them no longer exists. And that includes health infrastructure as well. Um, and just to give you the definition of asylum seeker, it's a person who's applied for refugee status but's waiting, for, simply waiting for the out, outcome of their application. It's as simple as that. But their entitlements are, are very different. I'm going to give you some facts now because I think this is this is particularly important, and I want to put it in a, a global context. And I want you to compare the numbers of people that. Um, that are affected this way globally and the numbers of people that we, uh, we assist. So the global trends for 2015 um, provided by the UNHCR um, now find unprecedented levels of um, refugees, internally displaced people and asylum seekers and more, and more than any other time in history and that includes uh, during and after the Second World War. So huge numbers of people um, in this position. So 65.3 million people forcibly displaced worldwide and that was up to um, December 2015. Bear in mind that 51% of all refugees are kids. And again, this is, um, this is dispelling a, a popular misperception. 86% of the world's refugees are hosted by developing countries, not developed countries. We get a sense from our media, or we have done, that we're taking, we're the ones who are taking the overwhelming burden of refugees, of assisting refugees and asylum seekers. That's absolutely not the case. So not surprisingly, the biggest uh, refugee populations are, and are from, at the moment, from Syria, nearly five million people. Um, again, not surprisingly, from Afghanistan, 2.7 million people, and from Somalia in sub-Saharan um, sub Africa. So, and, and the reasons are obvious for those of you who have sort of followed world events. Uh, these are all places of considerable ongoing conflict. And these are the uh, these are the, t the top hosting countries at the moment. And and again, this gives lie to the um, the assertion that the developed countries are the ones that are assisting refugees and asylum seekers. So at the moment, again, you'll be aware that Turkey are hosting huge numbers of people in this situation. 
Pakistan because they're, uh, they, they're the country of first asylum for Afghanistan. Uh, Lebanon, at the moment, about 25%, 20 to 25% of their population are people from Syria. And then some uh, uh, Iran and some countries in uh, Ethiopia, in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and Jordan. And it's not surprising that these, uh, these Middle Eastern countries are hosting refugees at the moment. The conflict goes on in Syria with no, uh, with no respite. Okay, I mentioned before, but it's again um, worth um, impressing this on you, that uh, the developing regions are host to 86% of the world's refugees. Um, under UNHCR mandate. And the least developed countries provided asylum for 4.2 million refugees in 2015. So huge numbers. Now I want to talk about refugees in Australia. So, so you have a sense of the way um, we look after them or we provide for them. Um, for quite some time now, we've had a humanitarian program, which is a very good one. It assists people to um, refugees to settle in the country, but the numbers are relatively small. So we accept about 3,500, 3,750 refugees, humanitarian refugees, a year. These are under the offshore program, and these people are. Um, chosen in negotiations between our government and the UNHCR to bring them from places around the world um, where, they've, where they've, they've been in transit, essentially. The current government has said that they will increase the, um, this intake to 18,500 by 2017, 2018. But again, when you compare that number with the number of, uh, of people in this situation worldwide, it's really a very, very small number. The vast majority of people will come to uh, New South Wales and Victoria. And just bear in mind as well that close to 70% are less than 30 years of age. And very importantly for us as um, mental health clinicians, um, seven in 10 refugee entrants were found to have experienced some physical and or mental trauma. I just want to tell you a bit, a, a little bit about the, um, uh, the Syrian refugees who are coming in at the moment. Um, the government in 2015, early 2015, because of the Syrian crisis, agreed to take 12,000, um, uh, an additional 12,000 Syrian refugees. At the moment, there's probably been about 1,500 people of that number coming nationwide, and they're coming in fairly slowly. We won't be overwhelmed, um, and they'll come in over the next 18 months. Most of the, well, 48% of those people will probably come to New South Wales. And the bulk of them will come to the Sydney West and Sydney South West local health districts. So if you're working in those, those areas, you'll see people um, and you'll assist people in this situation. 
We have two ways of, um, of assisting uh, refugees and asylum seekers in, uh, in Australia. It's the offshore component, which I've spoken about. So those are those 13,750 who come each year under the humanitarian program. They have, they're given permanent residence before they come and they have all the entitlements that we do. So they have Medicare, they have some um, social service assistance, um, in the first six months of their arrival, they're provided with um, some assistance through settlement services. So they're helped to negotiate you know, a very, very complex um, uh, set of systems within our community. And then there's the onshore component, which is highly controversial and has been for some time. Um, so as I said before, refugees in Australia under the humanitarian program, their status is determined overseas, given permanent residency and all the subsequent rights and privileges. And it just varies from year to year where they come from. But you know, it's not surprisingly, most people will come from the Middle East, in addition to that, that uh, 12,000 that are coming from Syria. Um, but in previous years, people, the bulk of people have come from Sub-Saharan Africa, might have come from Myanmar, um, various places, depending on where conflicts um, have been going on and where the need is greatest. So I want to talk a bit about people managed under the onshore program because there are lots of misperceptions about this as well. So people who arrive by plane are generally not subject to detention. Um, they, um, they'll be on some type of visa, usually a business, um, perhaps a working, uh, perhaps a t tourist visa, and when they arrive, they apply for asylum. The visas that they come in on are, are allowed to lapse. Once those have lapsed, then they're given bridging visas while they're waiting for their, um, their application process to be determined. On the other hand, asylum seekers who arrived by boat, um, particularly after July 2013, were diverted to the Pacific Solution facilities at Manus Island and Nauru. Those people were previously detained on the mainland at Chris on Christmas Island and then distributed to various either detention centres or into community detention or came into the community um, uh, on bridging visas um, after security checks and a number of other checks. Asylum seekers released from detention in the community or on bridging visas. Um, people who were um, illegal, uh, irregular maritime arrivals already in the community and found to be refugees at the time of that election, that first election when the, the coalition came back into power. Um, were given temporary protection visas rather than permanent protection visas, regardless of whether they were deemed to be uh, found to be refugees under the Refugee Convention or not. But importantly, and these are people that we'll see, and you will see in our services who might not have Medicare, um, asylum seekers' eligibility to services varies depending on the mode of uh, arrival and stage of refugee determined process. 
Fortunately, in New South Wales, those without Medicare are allowed a fee waiver, um, under, uh, a Ministry of Health fee waiver for any necessary public health service. It has to be established that, that that's the case for them, and our service often provides that, uh, that proof. Um, but once that is established, then it's a necessary public health service, and that includes community, almost everything but, but discretionary uh, services like uh, cosmetic surgery, like particular types of um, hip replacement, things of that nature. Just anything else, uh, these people are entitled to a fee waiver and should be, um, should be given assistance. They shouldn't be turned away because they don't have Medicare or they don't have the means to pay. Um, and for some of the material assistance is provided through the Status Support Resolution um, Program, which is a program um, through the federal government but administered by, um, by a number of organisations in the community, uh, including the Red Cross, uh, Life Without Barriers, uh, Settlement Services International. So those services uh, provide um, some subsistence support for asylum seekers. I want to talk a bit about the things now um, that uh, about the impact of the experiences that these people have had, and, and I'm keen, really keen on you to to have this at the back of your mind when when people present to you for assistance. So. There are distinct entities of the refugee experience. They're the impact of their experience in their home, the country that they're fleeing from. There's that experience whilst in transit, which can be very, very difficult. Um, people can be in camps um, or, you know, in, uh, you know, subject to um, the whims of the authorities in various countries that they come through. And, and really importantly is a consequence of resettlement. So they've got these layers of um, you know, considerable duress and, and considerable um, um, you know, psychological effort to, uh, to get through. I must say that in, you know, in, in my experience, these people are remarkably resilient and with support, you know, did very, very well, almost without exception. Refugees um, are very different from migrants, it goes without saying, and I, I, I won't go through um, the list of, of uh, differences. Just to say that they've, refugees have often been exposed to persecution in their country of origin, have survived extreme hardship while fleeing and in their country of origin. These are the types of things that they might have experienced, so certainly war and civil unrest in those places where the conflict ongoing, prolonged harassment, often torture, uh, loss of family and friends through violence, and, and Roy has spoken about the importance of, um, of, of the family, um, particularly from uh, you know, cultures within the Middle East, places like Afghanistan and uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. And again, not surprisingly, um, poor medical care, basically because the infrastructure is usually no longer there. Uh, the camps are not, <coughs> are not the best of places, and particularly the more recent ones. These places in Turkey um, where people have come across the border, um, 
really just provide people with very basic necessities, just a roof over their head, um, some clean water and, and barely adequate food. Um, and because of the numbers, um, uh, very, very limited um, medical and health care as well. Most of the refugee camps are in countries of first asylum. They're, they're develop, often developing countries. And again, just because of the numbers, very, very difficult to provide um, <coughs> uh, for little else than very basic assistance. So they, they can be quite, these camps can be quite dangerous. Um, but at least people are away from sort of imminent danger. And that's, the, the, uh, that's what we often hear. People are, once they get here, often happy just to be out of harm's way. It's as simple as that. It's not something that we, something we take for granted. So these are some of the resettlement difficulties and um, <clears throat> not least of all social isolation. And again, because these people have, have um, uh, lived um, in extended, big extended families and depended on their families for support. So um, social isolation is uh, a major factor. Um, overcrowded and poor quality housing, employment and financial difficulties for obvious reasons. Um, changes in role and um, uh, family structure. And again, um, these things can be quite difficult for them. And, and not surprisingly, racism. When we have you know, um, elements in the community, would seek to use them for political ends. So again, not surprisingly, unfamiliarity with the new community, the long-term impact of torture and trauma, ongoing concerns about uh, family members that they've left behind. Um, and that's something that we see uh, on a daily basis in our clinics. These are people's major concerns, particularly for those loved ones in, who are still in conflict zones or are still in dangerous um, camps or in transit and you know, they have limited communication to them. There are some specific uh, issues in relation to asylum seekers that adds to that duress. So I want you to have the sense that these people have you know, got layer upon layer of duress. Um, Often they've had the impact of prolonged detention, um, which differs from those humanitarian refugees that come to us. Some have access to Medicare and some don't, and some have access to welfare services and some don't. They have ongoing welfare and legal stresses because they're in the middle of that determination process. And many of these people, um, the later people who've been granted bridging visas have been um, given limited work rights and some assistance through social uh, security or social services. But we, the bulk of people we see um, have neither Medicare, um, no work rights and no assistance. So they're entirely dependent on, uh, on charity and are essentially in enforced destitution. And very, very difficult on top of everything else that um, you know, they've experienced and are experiencing. These are some of the barriers to healthcare in Australia. So I, I just want you to be you know, cognizant, cognizant of this um, you know, when, you, when you're trying to assist people in this situation. I would impress upon you to use um, accredited interpreters at all times. Um, it's impossible to do a it's impossible to do a, medical, uh, a reasonable medical assessment 
and certainly in relation to a mental health assessment, if you don't use an interpreter, um, how on earth are you going to find out what, uh, you know, how you might assist them and what's happening, what's happening to them? There are financial constraints to them because their, their um, incomes are limited, uh, certainly at least initially. And, and again, Roy alluded to this um, limited trust of healthcare providers and certainly when people have come to, from places where the healthcare providers have, have been complicit in their persecution or worse. So it's particularly important that you have these sorts of things at the back of your mind. There's unfamiliarity with the Australian healthcare services and systems, which is not surprising. It's, it's baffling to me. Um, there are incomplete, they have to deal with the incomplete skills of health professionals to detect and manage unfamiliar diseases among refugees. And we see things that um, uh, health professionals in the community would not usually see um, you know, within our community. So it's important to be aware of that. And a really important issue is, um, is the way we, um, we relate and communicate with people in, in this situation. It's important to give people lots of time. It's important to have accredited interpreters. And it's really important, although you know, often uh, this is the way we work, not to fire questions at people. Um, you know, let them divulge, let them divulge information um, as slowly as you can within the constraints, because there's a risk of re-traumatising them. Okay, um, I'm sort of conscious of the time, so I'm going to go to uh, a case study just to give you an idea of, uh, of what we do. I'm going to tell you about um, somebody who we've seen um, over, a, over a couple of years. Um, and this will just give you a sense of what sort of things this man had experienced and had experienced um, as he went through the process of his application for, uh, for refugee status um, and his, uh, um, his progress through um, fairly complicated um, medical uh, system um, because of the problems that he'd, uh, he'd come to us with. So he was a 37-year-old man from Pakistan. He was a merchant seaman. He'd applied for asylum after jumping ship in 2011. When we saw him, he'd been rejected at all levels of the application process, uh, and his final appeal through the federal court had, had been recently rejected. I might say he had a very, you know, uh, on the face of it, he had a very strong um, case for refugee status. Um, he previously had Medicare, um, but no work rights. Um, and he referred himself for assistance with, uh, with a hand problem after losing his Medicare rights. So ours is a free G GP service. The only other free GP service in Sydney is provided by the Asylum Seekers Centre in Newtown. So we're really their only option apart from, uh, from the emergency department at you know, the nearest hospital. Um, he had past medical history of back pain secondary to a beating by the Taliban in 2008. So he'd, um, he'd come from Afghanistan into Pakistan uh, uh, as part of his experience uh, while he was 
while he was there. He was depressed. Um, he'd seen a GP when he had Medicare who looked after him very well. He, um, he began treating the depression. Uh, the GP um, referred him to sort of appropriate services, support services, um, which included STARTS, the Torture and Trauma Service. He'd made a referral for, uh, to the neurosurgeon at Westmead and he was, um, he was having some physiotherapy for his hand injury. So he's been looked after very well. And these, these were all services that were provided you know, relatively close to him. Because remember, these people have got very limited income and this man didn't have any income at all and wasn't allowed to, um, to uh, generate any income for himself. So, so even uh, travelling from a health facility to, uh, or from his home to a health facility was, you know, it was particularly difficult without assistance. So at the initial consult, um, his hand injury was improving with physio and as it turned out, these were the least of his problems. Um, his depression was improving and, and it had commenced uh, at start. So starts were an excellent service. It started to provide him with some strategies for coping with his situation. Okay. Um, our plan was to, for him to continue the physio, to continue the, um, the antidepressant uh, treatment and starts counselling and to, um, to follow up with me in particular if there was any sort of deterioration in his mental state uh, or there were any new symptoms. So he had fairly um, significant physical problems. He had lots of pain. He had pain radiating, radiating down one leg and he had limited mobility. So he had a significant um, spinal problem. The second time we saw him, he remained anxious and depressed. Um, the medication and counselling were partially helpful because they were only a stopgap. His, his, his general situation hadn't improved. You know, he was still uncertain about what was going to happen to him um, because he came from a big extended family. His family from, uh, from his country of birth um, wanted, wanted to know why he hadn't re got, had refugee status and why he wasn't able to bring some of them with him. Um, his back pain was becoming more severe. He had dyspepsia from the analgesics that he was, um, was having for his back pain. But he was on the waiting list for surgery and it was identified that he had, um, he had fairly significant L4, L5 disc prolapse and pain in both legs. The surgeon, bless him, had arranged uh, some intra, an intralaminar epidural just to alleviate, um, to alleviate the pain. Third consult, essentially the same. His dyspepsia had resolved. He remained uh, anxious about the application process and his family in Pakistan. And our advice was to continue, essentially continue um, uh, with the supports that he'd been provided. Fourth consult, um, the, um, uh, he had increasing back pain. The neurosurgery was due, but his mental state had deteriorated because he'd heard of the, the deaths of family in Pakistan. Um, so his mental state was, had certainly deteriorated. When we saw him for the fifth time, the back pain had been worse and the surgery had been postponed. His mental state had, um, had deteriorated after the final uh, appeal had been rejected. 
fifth consult a plan was you know, essentially continue the support um, that he'd had. We were worried about his mental state because he'd start to have thoughts of self-harm um, and he'd had an intent and plan so he contracted with him to uh, uh, that he would call us and use, uh, use emergency services should, um, should he act on, intend to act on those, that plan. And some subsequent progress. He, he did have spinal surgery, which was successful. Um, when we we sort of uh, when we saw him at that time, they were resolving symptoms. Um, he remained on his present treatment with physio and starts, and that was that follow-up was planned. And his visa was extended to 2015. Um, and his subsequent progress was that he got more bad news from home. He developed um, some symptoms of anxiety um, and panic. Um, the anxiety and depression was essentially unchanged, and, but his, you know, really his obvious his symptoms were react, uh, reactive to his immigration situation. Uh, and finally, um, the last time we saw him, those, those musculoskeletal symptoms were tolerable. All the supports remained in place, but unfortunately he'd been directed by the department to return home. And as far as I know, he's been deported. Uh, and look, I'll leave it at that. And, um, okay.